Rackhouse Ramblings, episode number 35, take one. You guys probably thought that was me, didn't you? You really did. <laughs> that was some of Chris Stapleton uh, that I uh, put on there for you. It's called the Comeback Song. So here we go. Rackhouse Ramblings, episode 35. I'm Jeff, your host. This is the 15th episode of the second season. Uh, for today's, today's podcast, I am uh, trying out some new equipment. So please, please, please give me some feedback. Let me know what you guys think. Different mic, different setup. Um, I'm pretty sure it's going to pick up a bunch of background noise or whatever, but uh, let me know what you guys think. Let me know of the volume, things like that. So I'm kind of starting from scratch, but a uh, new mic, new uh, podcast control station, all this stuff. So anyway, let's get into it. going to start with some bourbon. I am sipping on a unique bourbon called Legend, L-E-G-E-N-T, Legend, but with the T instead. And as usual, I started out with the webpage, www.legendbourbon.com. And I bought this bottle because it's uh, different, it's unique, and I was really curious about it. So before we go any further, I'm going to pour some out of the bottle here. And I kind of cheated. I tried this before the show and uh, sipped on it, and I, I enjoy it. I like it. It's pretty good. If you see a bottle, I'd uh, recommend picking it up. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, aren't I? So anyway, here we go. That's better. So now that I've got some in my hand, I went to their website. Now, Legend is a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, partially finished in wine and sherry casks. And what uh, got my attention is it is a co collaboration between two whiskey legends. And you guys probably, you may or may not know some of these people, but we'll see. Uh, Fred No and Shinji Fukuya, Fukuyo, something like that. F-U-K-U-Y-O. Um, they both have two unique styles of whiskey making. Um, on their website it says, Legend starts with a historic bourbon recipe from Fred No's family. Every drop is crafted with high-quality grains and calcium-rich, iron-free limestone water and is aged for at least four years in a newly charred white oak barrel. And I'm going to keep reading. This is from their website, uh, legendbourbon.com. Um, it's here that Legend begins to pick up unique flavors from the different casts. Uh, layers of spice and fruity undertones are imparted from the sherry casks, while the red wine casks lend Legend a light tartness and help punch up the dried fruit flavors. Shinji Fukuyo takes these distinct secondary finished bourbons and meticulously blends them with Kentucky straight bourbon. Blending allows Shinji to balance the distinct flavors to consistently hit the flavor profile he and Fred originally envisioned. Excuse me. It starts like a bourbon, rich, warm, and oaky. Then, like a Japanese whiskey, it features complex layers and a bright, smooth, and unexpectedly long finish. Three barrels, one unique finish. I'm going to pause right there. Uh, I'm reading from their webpage, legendbourbon.com, and that's one of the things that caught my attention was three barrels. Uh, we'll talk about more. I'm going to keep reading here. Um, there is bourbon barrel aging. That's barrel number one. From these barrels, Legend absorbs char notes and rich traditional bourbon cues like caramel, oak, and vanilla. Then it goes on to say sherry cask finishing. That's barrel number two. Sherry casks add complex layers of spice, raisin, and heavy dried fruit flavor. These casks also help give Legend its deeper reddish color. 
And then the third, barrel number three, red wine cask aging. French oak wine casks are import, uh, fresh, French oak wine casks impart different oak notes than traditional white oak bourbon barrels. These red wine casks also give legend, mildly fruity undertones and a light acidity. So I'll stop reading from their webpage, but when I look at this, um, the bourbon is definitely a, uh, a little bit deeper mahogany color to me. Um, but it, and it tastes, it has like a very, uh, I don't want to say complex, sound kind of weird with that, but it's a different flavor. I, kind of, I like it. So um, after reading all of that and wondering, um, you guys might want to say, who's Fred Noe and who's uh, Shinji Fukuyo? Well, I kind of, they're kind of like rock stars in the world of spirits. And by spirits, I mean whiskey and bourbon, all distilled alcohol. But um, I kind of did a deep dive. So let's start with Fred Noe. And uh, I did some research on a website called Whiskey univ.com like university but kind of truncated whiskey univ.com and this is what they had to say about fred booker no the third uh, he's the son of the late great frederick booker no jr and great grandson of jim bean i'm going to pause right there so if you were ever at a liquor store or anything you look on the very top shelf the real expensive stuff there'll be a bourbon that is in a uh a wood case with a little glass front it's called uh booker's and they come out with four different expressions every year. I'm looking at a bottle right now on my shelf. It usually goes for about $99, $100. Um, and that would be uh, uh, this uh, Fred Knows Father Booker. So anyway, let's get back to it. Uh, Great-grandson Jim Beam is seventh-generation distiller, and this is Fred Know we're talking about, and keeper of a family flame that has burned for more than 200 years. Fred Know became the master distiller for Jim Beam Brands in 2007. He loves sharing the rich history of his family's legacy in bourbon and the art of distilling whiskey. And this is, um, I'm reading still from the whiskeyunit.com, uh, and it is really like a biography on Fred No. So Fred was steeped in the history uh, and history whiskey culture early on. He was born in 1954 in Bardstown, which happens to be the bourbon capital of the world, one of my favorite little towns, and grew up in the same house his great-grandfather, the legendary Jim Beam, once lived in. He learned at a young age to appreciate and understand the craft of whiskey making while listening to his father's stories about their family. After graduating from Bellarmine University in Louisville, Fred worked under his father's watchful eye, learning every aspect of the bourbon making process, including distilling uh, and fermentation. When Fred was old enough, he started out on the bottling line on the night shift. His father, Booker, wanted him to learn the, the business from the ground up. He said to Young No, you go to the night shift bottling line. You're pretty damn close to the ground. So that means he's starting at the bottom. But he said he loved it from the beginning and quickly moved up. He said uh, he was never much of a student in school, but he really took to the distillery pretty good. Uh, he's now been part of the distillery for 34 years as of 2018. Uh, Fred has also served as ambassador of the small batch bourbon collection, Knob Creek, Basil Hayden, ba uh, Bakers, and Booker's. So... All of those are right at my uh, on the on the top of my list here. I have a bottle of Knob Creek right now. Uh, I think it's a 12 year that I have. Uh, Baker's is one of my favorite. That's a seven year old bourbon. And then the Booker's I have up on the shelf. I haven't even opened it yet. So there you go. Uh, these bourbons were personal personal design and distilled by his father Booker. Fred played an important role in the development and promotion of these ultra-premium bourbons. Stand by. 
Let's see, Fred played an important role in the, I lost my spot here, sorry, I'm still reading from that webpage. <laughs> in the development and promotion of these ultra premium bourbons, which are aged longer, feature higher proofs and representative of pre-prohibition whiskey. When these bourbons were first introduced, he would taste samples at the family's kitchen table and help select the batches that were ready for bottling. Fred Noe was inducted into the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame in 2013 and became only the 10th of 11 Beam family members to be inducted into the Bourbon Hall of Fame behind Parker Beam, his father, Booker Noe, Colonel Jim Beam, Earl Beam, Jeremiah Beam, Carl Beam, Baker Beam, David Beam, Jack Beam, and Charles Beam. Fred said at his induction into the Bourbon Hall of Fame that I gotta say I'm pretty damn lucky. I got the best job in the world, get to work with the best people in the world, and get to travel the world. Beam Centauri, North America president, uh, Matt Shackock said Fred's the closest thing we've got to a rock star. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Uh, so there you have it. So that was Fred No. That's one guy that's collaborating on the, the Legend Bourbon uh, bottle that I have in front of me. The other guy is Shinji Fukuyo. And I found an uh, information on him. Uh, the website is called www.greatdrams.com, D-R-A-M-S.com. And I will read from their website. It says, let's begin. For Shinji Fukuyo, there is nothing more prestigious in the whiskey world than the title of Master Blender. So that kind of caught my eye right there. So one guy is a master distiller. The other guy is a master blender. Um... I guess they're very, I would consider them very similar, but definitely not the same. So I'll keep reading. It means you have a palate and nose developed enough to create internationally renowned blends. This is the title that was bestowed on Shinji Vakuyo in 2009 by the Japanese distillers Suntory. That's the name of the company. He is only the fourth person to have ever held a position within the company. Suntory was established in 1899. So to only be the fourth master blender in the company's history is truly an accolade. Shinji finds his whiskey roots in 1984 when, his, uh, when he first began working for the legendary company in the Hakushu Distillery based in the Torabera region. Hmm. It didn't take long for people to notice just how talented he was. And in 1992, he was transferred to the blending department of Yamazaki Distillery. The distillery is open in 1923 and was Japan's first commercial whiskey distillery. Shinji tri uh, thrived in the blending department and within four years was sent to learn more from the Scots and even to show them a thing or two about the art of distillation. From the years 96 to 2002, Shinji worked in Scotland at the University of Harriet Watt and Morrison Bowmore. Hmm. Uh, there he worked in the International Center for Brewing Distilling. This is a reputable institution that works for the improvement of the industry, and Shinji played an important role there. He also worked at Morrison Bowmore Distillers, a subsidiary of Suntory. His place here shows how important he was to Suntory as they trusted his ex expertise across the globe. Uh, how does it say? From 2002, he returned to Japan to take up the position of director of the blending department. This began his rise to the much coveted position of master blender, which he was awarded in 2009. Under this title, he is responsible for every bottle of whiskey blended or single malt that is released from Suntory Distilleries. Wow. And considering how well the brand does its spirit awards across the world, uh, it's a testament to just how good Shinji is at his job. Despite his time living in Scotland and working in Scottish institutions, Shinji maintains that Japanese whiskey should not be called scotch. 
Japanese whiskey finds its roots in the distilling of scotch, and the first creators were inspired by the way scotch was made, but Shinji attributes the success and superiority of Japanese whiskey to the convergence of three rivers outside the distillery. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? I know I've probably mentioned to you guys before that every distillery in Kentucky seems to have a stream run next to it where they draw their water from. So this is a very similar uh, story. Um, this gives the water a soft texture and makes it incredibly pure as the distillery's main water supply. It's no wonder Centauri is of such a high quality. Shinji is very particular about the barrels he chooses to create new blends from, uh, new blends from, believing that every barrel is different and as such, recipes must be changed every year. Sounds like a lot of hard work, but when you love it, it becomes easier. We would all love the chance to meet, you know, to be a master blender, even just for one day, but the job requires dedication and perhaps more importantly, a pretty strong sense of smell. Boy, oh boy, there you go. So that was from, uh, what was that website called? Greatdrams.com. So, like, we have these two big, big dogs in the distillery world, uh, Fred No and Shinji Fukuyo, and they came up with this bourbon called Legend. And um, I would suggest getting you some. I can't even remember where I found this. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. L E G E N T, Legend Bourbon. Uh, get you some. For sure, we're gonna bear with me. I am uh, working on my new equipment here, and uh, we're gonna do a transition to our next subject. Stay right there. Right, Rackhouse Ramblings is back. I hope you guys uh, like this. That was live from Daryl's house with Sammy Hagar and Daryl Hall called Foolish Pride. That was just the intro. I'm kind of messing around with these things, uh, getting different sound bites and things like that. So anyway, Rackhouse Ramblings episode 35. We're going to get back into uh, my Montana segment. So this is part two of the trip that Ann and I recently took. In part one, we left off where Ann and I arrived at Glacier National Park, and just for a quick review, we landed in Bozeman three days earlier and picked up a Mercedes Sprinter van, one of those RV vans. We've and, uh, camped all the way up towards uh, Glacier in the Montana wilderness. Ann and I drove into the park. We arrived after we had already spent three days in Montana. We arrived around 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we stopped at the visitor center and we found out there and then there was only two campgrounds open. Uh, They're called Apgar and Sprague Creek. We were hoping for Sprague Creek because that was a lot smaller. Um, the other one, Apgar, has 194 sites. And it's pretty much like camping uh, anywhere <laughs> with 194 sites. So Sprague Creek only has 25, and, and that's more like me. So we drove up there. It's first come, first serve, and it's right on Lake McDonald, which is the big lake that you see all the pictures of Glacier National Park. So if you did a Google and you search Lake McDonald or Glacier, you'd see this lake with this clear water and all these colored rocks at the bottom and mountains in the background. That's Lake McDonald. So the, the campground uh, that we wanted, Sprague uh, Creek, was right on that lake. So we drove from the entrance north and followed the road. And the road uh, is along the shoreline, Lake McDonald. And it was nine miles from the entrance of the park to Sprague Creek. One of the first signs uh, we saw as we pulled in, <laughs> said no travel trailers. When we pulled into Spray Creek, said no travel trailers, no campers over 21 feet. 
and we were good on both because we had just the van and we found this great site that backed up to the lake and it wasn't very far to the toilet so it was pretty cool um and it was kind of a relief because like i said it's first come first serves and if you think about it, we traveled 1842 miles from michigan to get here i google that by the way and we had no reservations no uh, itinerary no concrete plans or anything and now we got a place to stay for the next three nights so that was pretty cool um Traveling this way is really, really, really out of Anne's comfort zone. I want to thank her for letting me do that. But anyway, uh, we got that afternoon, We after we got settled in, we explored the shore. We took those like obligatory pictures of the crystal clear water, like I was saying, with the reflection of the mountains, so it looks like a mirror and all that. And um, from there, we drove further north and found out um, the going to the sun road was closed. Uh, it was closed to vehicle traffic, and it was open only another eight miles for bicycles and foot traffic. Uh, going to the Sun Road is pretty much, it might be the, one of the biggest attractions at Glacier National Park. And to explain this going to the Sun Road, I went over to, to um, TripAdvisor. It says, going to the Sun Road, oops, sorry guys, that was my glasses here. Going to the Sun Road is a scenic mountain road, and I'm reading from TripAdvisor, uh, is a scenic mountain road in the Rocky Mountains of the Western United States in Glacier National Park, Montana. The Sun Road, as is sometimes abbreviated in the National Park Service documents, is the only road that traverses the park, crossing the Continental Divide through Logan Pass at an elevation of 6,646 feet. It's the highest point on the road. Construction began in 1921, is completed in 1932 with formal dedication in the following summer of 1933, blah, blah, blah. The road is the first to have been registered in all the following categories. Uh, National Historic Place, National Historic Landmark, Historic Civil Engineering Landmark. The road is about 50 miles long, spans the width of the park between the east and west entrance stations. National Historic Landmark nomination records uh, records a slightly shorter distance of 48.7 miles, which is measured from the first main intersection just outside the park's entrance to Divide Creek in St. Mary on the east side of the park. So there, that was from TripAdvisor. Um, later we found out the park uh, was only gonna let people on the road with a reservation. Apparently last season, uh, it turned into like a 50 mile long traffic jam. So we were there early in the season, the road hadn't even opened up yet, but when they plan on opening it uh, a few weeks after we left, they were gonna do it on a reservation only basis. So imagine that, you have to make a reservation just to drive on a road, no shit. A 50 mile road, as a matter of fact, 48.7. So it sounds really bizarre, but it goes to show how popular our national parks can be, right? Um, I guess we'll have to go back one day and try it because we didn't get to go on that road. Anyway, um, Anne wanted to go on a hike and we chose one that day, it was called Lincoln Lake. And the map showed it was like a 1.8 mile uh, climb up to this ridge and then you can go across the ridge two miles to, uh, it's called Fish Lake. And we should have known something was up when we pull in there and there's no cars parked at the trailhead. Because at most national parks, every parking spot is going to be full. They're hard to come by. So to find a place with no cars, well, let me keep reading here. <laughs> Ann, Ann and I threw on our day packs and we, uh, we left the trailhead. And it was a pretty warm, sunny, sunny day in the 80s. Not much of a breeze, real clear blue skies. Um, and we leave the parking lot and the trail, it's kind of... Uh, uphill and climbed right and it starts going right up the hill and so we're climbing and I kept waiting for it to flatten out I'm thinking oh we'll get to the top of the ridge right we keep going up and up and up we go 
but we never got to the top. We, we weren't getting to the top, put it that way. The trail was cutting through. It was like a really uh, a mature pine forest, huge, huge, huge pine trees, easily two or three feet across. Um, and there was a whole bunch of them blown down, a shit ton of them. It looked like there had been a storm recently or something like that. All of them were laying everywhere. So we're walking on the trail and we keep climbing and keep climbing. We even, we stopped a few times, started shedding layers and start drinking our, I was drinking my water. I don't, Ann didn't want to, she didn't want to have to go pee, but so we're getting all this elevation, we're sweating and there's trees and trees and more trees. And after what seemed like an hour, but it's really only 30 minutes turned out, I'm looking at my GPS and I could see we weren't even halfway up the goddamn mountain. <laughs> we were both sweating like pigs, dripping sweat. And I kind of felt a little defeated, but I said, you know what? Let's let's just turn around, stop right here. <laughs> this is not a fun hike by any means. And it's funny, going back downhill, we walked 30 minutes uphill going down, probably took us like 10 minutes, really. <laughs> but anyway, so that was our first hike. It was a failed hike. And it's that might be the first failed hike we ever had but anyway so that was the lincoln lake don't hike it let me let me take a sip stay right there so we drove back to the uh, campground i took one of those outside showers because there's no one around and the the campground did not have a shower it just had toilets had uh toilets and a couple of sinks for running water and and just kind of use the washcloth to kind of freshen up and uh Later, Ann met the campground host. This guy, his name is Ed. And host is really just like a person that stays at the campground for the season. They kind of keep things tidy. They collect the fees. They act as like a resource for all of my dumb visitor questions like mine. And he told Ann, Ann asked about fishing and told her, you know, you can fish uh, down by the park entrance where McDonald Creek empties into the middle fork of the Flathead River. So we had dinner, then drove down there. And it's probably a good 20-minute ride from our campground. And uh, it was a nice spot. The water was deep. It was clear. Um, I could, But I could only fish off. Uh, there was a bridge and maybe one little opening in the brush that let me walk to the edge of the flathead. Um, the water there was really moving. And I'd, I remind myself, it's spring runoff. So water is just cruising right on by. I did catch a nice little rainbow. Threw it back, though. Um, got and barely even got a picture. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time, but that was the only fish I'd catch at Glacier National Park. No shit. The next morning, we got up early and drove north from our campsite at Sprague Creek to go to uh, a hike. It was called Avalanche Lake Trail. And this is a famous uh, hiking trail in the park that takes you back through the woods to Avalanche Lake. Uh, we had to get there early just to make sure we get a parking spot. And the weather was like gray and overcast. And the rain kind of came and went as we hiked. It was a three, they're saying it's 3.3 miles from the parking lot. It was probably a little bit longer, but um, the beginning of the trail was easy. It was this like paved um, handicap access trail. But after the first mile, it wasn't so handicap access. The, the rest of the trail was like rocky with a little bit of incline. Um, and it wound through these tall pines again. The forest was on our right. And on the left, you could see like this tall cliff face. So the whole time we're walking, the right side's trees, the left side kind of opened up into these straight up cliffs um, the whole way back there. And so, it, like I was saying, it was a little bit rainy and all that. And as you could look with the rain, you could see all these little waterfalls were scattered, like scattered along the cliff face. Um, it was really, it was pretty cool. Some of the water didn't even make it to the ground. You could look way, way up and see as the water poured over the side of the cliff that it just, the wind took it and it turned to like a mist. It, it was pretty cool. We, it, 
even though it was gusty and a little bit chilly and all that, it was not a big deal. Um, at the trail's end, like when we got to the end, the, uh, oops, stand by. Sorry guys, technical error. <laughs> uh, I bumped into the button and turned down my music. So at the end of the trail, the trees parted and here we were at Avalanche Lake. It was like, um, when you get to the lake, you could look across and all around the edges of the lake was a mountain. It was like a bowl, like a, a bowl with steps going around it. And the rim, put it this way, the rim was the mountains and the base of the bowl was these giant pine trees. And the upper rim, the top of the mountains was all white with snow caps. So as you look from left to right, you see green down the bottom and then gray of the mountain. And then the very top would have been the white snow caps from left to right, all the way around like a giant stadium, like a bowl. So uh, if you Google Avalanche Lake, there's hundreds of pictures of it. And they're all like clear blue skies and all that stuff, but ours wasn't. It was wet and it was gray and it was windy and rainy. <laughs> it was cool. We stayed probably about 15 minutes, took some pictures and headed back. And just as we're leaving, we stopped at this little outhouse. And um, hanging around the outhouse was a deer. It was like you could walk right up to it. It was really friendly and all that. But didn't, wasn't afraid of hikers or anything like that. So anyway, that afternoon we hiked another trail called Rocky Point. Uh, our campground... Um, Spray Creek and Avalanche Lake were both on the east side of McDonald Lake and Rocky Point Trail was on the west side. So we had to drive down to the entrance, like do like a giant uh, letter U and go to the other side of the lake. So we drove the van south and back around the lake and this side of the lake was windy and a lot colder. It was really cold. Well, it I wouldn't say snow and cold, but it was just a stiff breeze coming on the lake. So the, the trail started out in this hardwood forest and changed to pines and then it got up to the edge of the lake and it was all these rocky outcroppings, hence the name Rocky Point. So when you head out there, you end up at this point, looks right over the lake. It was pretty cool, it was, but the wind was blowing right in your face. And it was only, not even quite two miles, 1.8 it says. And it wasn't a climb, it was pretty flat. But on the way back, when we were done with the hike, I stopped at the southern edge of McDonald Lake, where it turns into McDonald Creek. And it looked like a perfect spot for fishing. Had some areas I could walk right up to the shore. So I tried fishing, but no luck. And then um, we went back to our campground and had some dinner. And after dinner, the host, Ed, invited us to uh, sit by his campfire. And it was pretty wild. He had a bunch of stories to tell, and I had a bunch of stories to tell. And we probably spent a couple hours with him and had some beers and s'mores. It was pretty fun. So that was our night from there. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause with this story and um, do like a part three for the uh, next uh, episode. So anyway, episode uh, 35, Rackhouse Ramblings, I'm gonna do a quick transition and we are gonna get into a book review. Bam, there we go. So that is one of my sound bites that came with my new uh, podcast equipment here. So let's get into it. Episode number 35, my book review. I've got two books to talk about. Both are by uh, Steve Ranella, the guy from Meat Eater. The first book was titled, uh, or is titled, Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. And I'm not going to talk much about this one because I was disappointed with it. Uh, I've got a bunch of these other survival books. This one from uh, the Meat Eater guys, I didn't think really even measured up to those. I'm most of the survival books I have have pictures and illustrations and things. And this one has some, but not nearly as many and not nearly as detailed. 
uh, it falls way, way, way short. So anyway, save your money. For example, there's like a section on edible plants and berries. You need to know the color. You need pictures, right? These were just little illustrations that had line drawings, black and white, no real life examples. So to me, that was pretty much useless. So anyway, I, I won't be bringing that book into the woods with me or whatever. And then there is a section on starting fires. Um, what materials you use and so on. Well, they get, give me a picture of uh, birch bark, pine sap, kindling, stuff like that, not line drawings. How would you explain birch bark to someone without showing them a picture, right? Anyway, don't, don't buy that book, The Wilderness Skills and Survival. I'll loan you my copy. You can check it out. Second book I did like, though. It's called The Scavenger's Guide to Haute Cuisine. And it's an older book. It came out in 2006. I have a 2015 edition. This book talks about... Uh, uh, the, the writer Steve Rinella found an old cookbook that talked about using all different types of foods and things from years ago, but had a lot of wild game in it. And he took um, 12 months to come up with a menu for three separate nights or three nights right in a row and uh, 45 different courses or something like that. And it talks about how he gathers all the things from like pigeons to uh, wild boar to venison to elk, all these different things that come together, and not just the meat part, but also making soups and pâtés and appetizers and all different types of things out of uh, all the game that he finds. But it's a, a book that kind of covers a span of a year, and it ends with him putting on the dinner for all of his friends. I thought it was really, really interesting. I would recommend that one. It's called The Scavenger's Guide to Haute Cuisine by Steve Ranella. So I would check that. I would recommend that one. Check it out. So anyway, um, I think that's pretty much all I'm going to have for this podcast. I'm going to have some more legend bourbon. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Please give me a little feedback. I'm not sure how the volume's going to sound. I'm not sure how my sound effects sound, but I would like to uh, know what you guys think. Uh, anybody out there, shoot me a text. So with that being said, Rackhouse Rambling is going to sign out. I'm going to do a little music on the outro. Uh, everybody have a great night. We'll talk to you later. People too, I mess around.